We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. I hope you guys all had a wonderful Christmas holiday. I know I did. Lots of turkey, lots of good food, lots of friends and family around. It was amazing. So, continuing on with end-of-year tradition at Expat Money, we like to do best-of episodes from the previous year. So, today what I am going to be doing is playing for you some clips that we did all relating to privacy specifically privacy, security, safety, and secrecy. So why are these things important? Well, you will find out during this episode. What we want to do is try to tell a bit of a story here. It's going to be a bit of a mishmash of different clips, and I'll be coming back and forth to try to help navigate things. We've been doing these for a few years, every year on a different topic, and the response is always fantastic. So I hope you get a ton of information and knowledge and, and insights from today's episode. So today's episode, episode is sponsored by My Private Bitcoin. If you go to myprivatebitcoin.com, you guys are going to find a really relevant and really excellent course on how to use Bitcoin anonymously and privately and go through things, even if you have bought through an exchange before, what you can do to try to fix things. So all you need to do is go to myprivatebitcoin.com. And there is a 25% discount code already installed for you. So go to myprivatebitcoin.com. Okay, let's jump in to today's episode. I want to start it off with a story by my friend Gabriel Custodiet. This is from episode 162. And Gabriel is going to be talking about how he learned about privacy and began his privacy lifestyle. He'll also talk about why you need to take privacy issues really seriously. You know, they don't give out degrees in, in privacy or privacy consulting. So I, I learned about privacy myself through being self-taught, I guess you could say. You know, I, I read all the books out there. I mean, all of them. I started practicing a, a privacy lifestyle for the last many years. I test everything. You know, I research like a savage and I'm an avid learner. And I try to stay balanced as well in terms of understanding computers. You know, I have a background in, uh, you know, computer science, I guess you could say. Understanding uh, finance and, and the legal realm and understanding, you know, physical privacy as well. And so I would say that, you know, when did I first start getting interested in this? Perhaps around 2013 with the Edward Snowden allegations, I think that's when a lot of us started getting concerned about this stuff. And, and that's when I really started researching the sheer politics, you know, of privacy and, and the philosophy of privacy. And I started to grow a, a political spine. I did my due diligence in, in reading history and understanding ethics. And, you know, I came to the conclusion that privacy is, I think, the greatest tool the individual has to ensure his freedom and protection, whether that's against the state uh, or any, you know, entity that would besiege him. So when people ask me, you know, well, you know, why is privacy important? Well, I'll give you a few examples. If you're skeptical of the government, right, which, you know, R.J. Rummel, death by government, governments killed by some estimates 300 million people, not including world wars in the 20th century. Well, if you understand that, then I probably don't have to convince you about the value of privacy. Or, you know, if you're one of the millions of people being stalked or harassed or your identity has been stolen, you know, I, I also probably don't have to convince you. If you are gay and you live in one of, I think, 10 countries where you can be killed for being gay, I don't have to convince you of the need for privacy. So I, I think we all care about privacy and people who say they don't uh, just haven't thought about it uh, as much as they should have. And that's what I've primarily done is just sit down, think about the value of privacy, do my due diligence. And that led me inevitably to wanting to help other people create the podcast, create the book. And I also do consulting as well. And I try to bring it all together and just you know, provide as much uh, value for people to get back privacy and freedom in their lives. Next up is a very sobering clip from episode 217 with Terry Tillard on why we need to stop making it so easy that they can access our private data. When they say you will have no privacy, you know, I want people to know that we have privacy phones now. We have privacy laptops now. 
We have people working hard because I think entrepreneurs are the only things that are going to solve the world's real problems. We have people building parallel internets, trying to get around internet service providers. We have people building mesh networks. There were Nobel Prizes won on these kinds of things. This is all taking place, but even for those who don't, there's lots of privacy apps you can download on your phone right now. Like At minimum, we've got to stop making it easy on them. You know, because I'll, I'll stop this last point and we can probe into any area that you want. But if you realize over the last three years, and for anyone who's a fellow deep platform truther like I've been for a long time, I used to have big followings on lots of social media networks. Like they just deleted me like overnight, like just ghosted, gone. So all that content's gone, all your following's gone, all your audience is gone. And for a lot of people, your entire business in essence is, is gone overnight when they can do that. But what you also realize in the last three years is... They are weaponizing our own data against us. That's how they got people to go along with the whole agenda the last three years. That, that's how they can sell you on the idea that Trump is going to save everything because they data mine everything that goes on online and then they feed you exactly what you want to fucking hear. And so people swallow it whole like, oh, he's for me. Look, he's speaking my language. He's speaking your language because you let him have the data to feed it right back to you. And so we, we need to stop doing that and stop making it easy on them. It's a small chink in the armor, but it, I think it counts. In the next clip, Gabriel Custodia and I are talking about privacy versus big tech and privacy versus government and why we need to have privacy in general. But I guess my first question in this avenue is, can you be private from governments? I mean, can you be private from these big tech companies? And so I would say pretty much to the first question and uh, definitely to the, the second question. So yes, you can be private from big tech. Uh, governments, that's a that's a more difficult matter. And that's when we get to your favorite techniques, which are living abroad, flag theory, this kind of stuff. That That's crucial for anybody who takes privacy seriously. But uh, no, look, I, I do think a lot of this is possible. And you don't have to give up your modern conveniences to, to gain some privacy. We'll, we'll get into some of those techniques about the balance between privacy and, uh, and convenience. But here's another thing to consider when we get to uh, you know why is why is privacy uh, so important today? So, uh, privacy when you when you get down to it, the essential reality of the universe is that we have a private mind, and throughout our lives we let some things in. We let our loved ones in. We let things that we like inside of our private mind. But we should never forget that our private mind is the central reality of the universe. And so, pursuing privacy, which is determining what you let into your life, is not only the greatest protection that we have, but it's also crucial for genuine living. So in a world of constant bombardment of messages, advertising, uh, state interference, news and fake news and you know, alarmism, uh, pursuing privacy is, I would say, nothing short of developing ourself in a way that is getting at the, the core of uh, what being is. It's about sifting through the white noise of culture. It's about not getting spam in our inboxes because we are a little bit more savvy with the email address the email addresses that we give out. Um, and when one does that, when one starts to be more proactive about what we let into our lives, well, I find that people become more productive. They become wealthier. Uh, they know what they want in life. Privacy is, you know, it's a means to an end for developing the genuine self. So do you see it as a sheet of armor that you wear? Yeah, so so that's a good question. So I would I would say I define privacy as uh, I actually define privacy as, as a social term. So we already have, you know, the word solitude, which is, you know, being alone and away from everything. Privacy, though, is a social term and it's a social environment where I can decide to a pretty serious degree what information I expose to others. And so you can think about, I guess, privacy as a shield. I think about privacy as a social environment, as I said. Um, and we want to cultivate a social environment where, sure, we, we have a shield and then we can be very selective about when we let down the, the defenses because, you know, we obviously, not all advertising is bad. We want to be aware of certain things. We want to bring people into our lives. Privacy is not about being antisocial. It's not about blocking out everybody from our lives. It's just about being a little bit more meaningful in a world that's always trying to get our attention. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So I guess my follow-up question is then, you know, in your opinion or in your life, if you're f willing to share it, are you open and do you let down your guard with the people that are close to your life? Or is the privacy that you 
try to attain or put in your life include everybody, all aspects. Like, I, I guess what I'm trying to see is, is it just the companies and the advertisers of big tech and government, or is it also from your your community, from your neighborhood, from your your friends, your buddies, your spouse, these types of people as well? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I would, I guess, point out first by saying that, you know, we're having a conversation right now. We met over the internet and we have certain things in common. Now, you don't know uh, a whole lot about me. I don't know that much about you. And yet we're able to have a great conversation. And there's there's a lot that we have in common. And so for me, there are certain things that I say are always off limits. I never give out my home address, for example. I never get out, give out various other pieces of information. But you know, if you think about it, I don't know if you remember the uh, kind of mediocre third in the Batman trilogy, uh, The Dark Knight uh, Rises, where uh, Bane, the guy wearing the mask, the villain, he says that nobody knew me until I put on the mask, right? Which is a great line. And then you have Oscar Wilde, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the playwright, the writer, uh, Irish writer, who has a great essay called uh, The Truth of Masks. And so I think for anybody who's been on the internet, you know that when you put on a persona, when you have a name that you use for a particular particular group of people, you can actually be more honest. You can actually be uh, more genuine, if you will. And that's kind of how I see uh, the privacy side, which is, and so Mikkel, I would say that privacy is a way to have different personas that we use to interact with the different people in our lives, whether that's a you know business entity or an online name or what have you. And so I, I don't see it as a contradiction at all. Uh, obviously, I'm <laughs> I expose whatever whatever I, I feel is necessary to my uh, you know my inner circle. But you can have amazing relationships with people without you know revealing your street address or or some of this other personal stuff, even without revealing your real name, for example. In the next clip, Terry talks to us about why we are all mutually responsible for the parallel economy. People have to realize that we are all mutually responsible for building the parallel economy. We are all mutually responsible for building these things. Like, oh, I got a free VPN. By the way, every VPN just about on planet Earth has already collected your data and has already sold your data. They're lying their asses off to you. So why would you not support a privacy-based one like, let's say, Mulvad? We like Mulvad a lot. They accept Monero. They, they collect zero personal information from you whatsoever. And yeah, you've got to pay a few bucks. Who cares? We're supporting the right thing. I pay a few dollars for an email provider that respects you. It's worth it. It's worth it over the free email account. And if you've got people who are community-driven crypto projects that are trying to create a currency for us that will be future-proof, that most of the developers, almost everyone on the team are all volunteers. There's no money. There's no salaries. There's no VC money. They're not accepting anybody's money. Well, we, we can support them. We can still financially support them. We can also build a parallel economy by talking to sellers and buyers and vendors about the benefits of it. We're all mutually responsible for building this parallel economy. We're not going to go back to barter. My friends, if you grow an apple tree and your neighbor doesn't have a need for apples, it, it's a horribly inefficient system. It's a nice idea, but we need a currency. It needs to be completely anonymous, not obfuscated. The wallets, the data, the every bit of every bit of data that moves in and out of every interaction with that currency needs to be protected and built for you. And we fully believe that Pirate Chain is trying to do that. And so we're not saying they're the only. We're talking about privacy tech or everything you can put on your phone to protect yourself. Every project in crypto that's supporting pro-freedom, pro-privacy, anything, anyone's trying to build something for us. If someone's building a cloud data storage that protects you, you want to get them. If they're building servers that don't have chips that have given Microsoft a backdoor into it, support them, right? Everything that we can do we want to live in a free world. It matters to me more than anything else. What the World Economic Forum describes, I will not live in that future. I'd rather not be on the planet than live that future. But I'm not going to just accept their defeat. Like you said, build communities. But those communities are not just the people around you. They're not just those people. We, we are a global community of freedom-loving people, and we can build interconnected networks, marketplaces, our own free energy networks, our own internet access without ISP providers. If we can build all of those things, if people are working on those projects, we need to support them, promote them, tell the world about them, use them, send some dollars, invest some money, all the above. I think it's so important, so we're huge on that. In this clip, Gabriel Custodia explains the simple ways to get started with privacy. 
it is important to simply with anything in life, right? The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So carve out one little thing and work on that. Here's something easy for the listeners to do. Clean out your inbox and stop having everybody send you emails. Now, this is a good example because not only will it protect you from phishing attacks, from advertising, hijacking your mind, if, if you want to think about it like that, but it will also give you a simply a peace of mind, right? A lot of people, they have to clear out their inbox. And if there's fewer things, you'll have more time to do other stuff. Your mind will be less polluted. So this is the perfect example of you know, how privacy can is protection, but it's also getting in touch with your more genuine personal private self. So here's what you can do for email. You can, for example, decide that, okay, I'm not going to give out my real email address anymore, except for maybe some of the essential things, my bank account, et cetera. You can go to a website like 33mail.com and create an account, which lets you create unlimited secondary email addresses that funnel to your actual email address. And so the next time you buy something online, you give out one of these temporary email addresses, one of these burner email addresses, you'll get your receipt from the company that you bought the thing, but they don't get your real email address and you can block it with one click when you're done. And you can start going through your inbox and unsubscribing to things. And once you do that, you've etched out a small part of your life and started practicing some of the privacy techniques that I've described. Well, I've also seen with email that there are ways that you can have like a catch-all type of email. I know with ProtonMail, it's very easy to set up. So if you have a paid account with them, you can have uh, a custom domain name, which could be any random domain name that you pick up on GoDaddy for $3 or something like that, and then set it as a catch-all. So you could use, when you buy from a store, you could put it like Amazon at randomdomainname.com. Then if you start getting emails from that say Amazon at randomdomainname.com, but it's not coming from Amazon, it's coming from someone else, you know that who has sold your information to another one. It's very interesting to watch how your information starts floating around the internet. Exactly, yes. And what you just described is basically how something like 33Mail works. And you're right. Once you start doing that, and let's say you, I don't know, you buy uh, a paddleboard. And so you name your email, right? Paddleboard company at mm -hmm. your, you know, your domain. In the future, if you start getting emails from a random person, it will come under the name of paddleboard at something.com. So you know, okay, this company exposed me. I'm not going to trust them again. You shouldn't trust any companies, of course. And you can start to collect information in addition to starting to protect some of your privacy. So that's a, that's a great, great example. Good advice. The next clip is from one of my favorite episodes of 2022. It's 187 with Sean Aranda, and we're talking about ghost guns and 3D printed guns. All right, so talk to me then. I hear this term ghost guns everywhere. You hear it thrown around by mainstream media and painting people in a very bad brush. Talk to me about ghost guns or what this is. Yeah, so ghost gun is just any gun that does not have a serial number. Well, so it's a made-up term, so it's I don't want to use their terms and, and help them. But anyway, it, it's supposed to be any gun that doesn't have a serial number. And that includes people who take their serialized gun and scratch it out. So when you see like crime statistics of ghost guns, a lot of those are people who literally scratched out the serial number on a regular firearm. So that includes 3D printed guns, people who scratched out their a serial number, and those who do what's called a P80 kit. And that's actually what the recent law was trying to restrict. A P80 kit is they give you everything you need to build your Glock, for instance, but the lower, the serialized portion has a few holes that aren't drilled out. And that makes it not a firearm under the law or under the previous law not a firearm because, and then you build the firearm yourself by drilling out those holes and that's all you need to do. And then it's the firearm that you built that's unserialized. That's what the Biden administration was going after recently were the P80 kits. But yeah, it's kind of a silly term, especially because crimes are almost never solved from the serial number of a gun. First of all, you have to have find the gun on the crime scene. That's number one. And number two, so my serialized gun, if I sell it to a friend, that doesn't need to be reported or anything. Or if I give it to a friend, it doesn't need to be reported or anything. They could give it to somebody else that doesn't need to be reported or anything. So the only thing the serial number does is tell you who bought the gun first. And then on top of that, so many crimes are committed by stolen guns. So it'd be like, oh, yeah, I bought it, but it was stolen from me. 
And then on top of that, any gun made before it's like 1968 or something like that wasn't required to have serial numbers. So, you know, there's literally probably 100 million plus guns that were made before 1968 in private citizens' hands that aren't serialized anyway. So, yeah, it's kind of a silly made up term, but it refers to any gun that doesn't have a serial number, which more than half my guns don't have now. So, yeah. And like you covered at the beginning of the interview, I mean, it's completely legal where you live that you're building it for yourself. You're not selling them. You're not giving them away. You're building them for your own use to go shoot on private property at your buddy's place and at the range. I mean, it makes sense to me. Yeah, it's completely legal. They just, that's what I was saying. It's always been legal to make your own firearm in America, always. And they came up with this term ghost gun to make it sound scary and now to implement laws on something that's existed for 250 years, so... Yeah, so it, this didn't come with the advent of 3D printers. Actually, unserialed guns have actually been part of the history forever. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, we probably, I don't know, we might still be British if we didn't make our own guns. So it really has been since our founding. And the only thing that's different about 3D printing guns is the tool. I mean, you know, it was a lot harder to make your own gun. Now the tool of 3D printing has made it easier to do that. I mean, people have been making, you know, slam shotguns. You can make a $50 pipe shotgun from just Home Depot parts people have been doing that forever. You just take two tubes and you slam them together and fire the shotgun. In the next clip from Tobias Ruck in episode 188, we talk about solutions to the issue of privacy when using cryptocurrency. So the one solution you already mentioned, which is privacy coins. Well, maybe, maybe there's actually three solutions and I'll talk about the last one, which is what, what I'm working on right now. So there's privacy coins and I'll talk about those in a bit. Then there's just never leaking your like KYC data, you know, your customer data. And the third one is Stamp, which I'm working on. And that actually works on Bitcoin. And I'll, but I'll, I'll get to that later. So you can actually retain privacy on Bitcoin if you use a different protocol. Maybe on Bitcoin, it might be a little inefficient. So I'm more favoring chains that are highly scalable, for example, eCash or Lotus. But in theory, it work. It, you could retain a lot of privacy on Bitcoin too, if you employ these protocols. Let's go through the Bitcoin one. I think let's go in reverse order. Let's tackle the Bitcoin one because I'm super curious about that. And then I want to talk about Monero and Zcash and some of those other ones and try to understand how they all function. Yes. Just a disclaimer, I'm a huge fan of Monero and Zcash. Like, I think those are incredible tools which we should use. But one thing that I'm afraid of is that they're not as scalable and we have some data on that. So I'm a little afraid that they won't handle like a billion users or so. What I'm working on right now is something that is highly scalable, but which has has the same model as Bitcoin, right? So you still have these transparent transactions. So, but... Then, then you're like, wait, doesn't this leak your private data? Right? Like, doesn't this leak who you like who you're sending money to? So to that, I would say you don't have to, right? So what Stamp is doing, it adds a similar level of privacy as Monero and Zcash, but in a very different way. So the way Stamp works, and Stamp is running on Lotus, on the Lotus chain, is it kind of imagine you have a wallet and it atomizes your coins into like very many relatively small coins so and you can like view that as a degree of privacy so you have like a sliding scale of privacy there so if you're like if you want to be very private you atomize it a lot into like maybe a thousand coins whatever but if you're like i don't know my device can't handle that much or it's like a lot of uh, traffic that i have to uh, handle then you only divide it into maybe 100 coins or whatever and then here's where the privacy uh, aspect comes in when I send money over to Mikel, instead of bundling them all together and revealing that I'm the owner of them and then allowing chain analysis, because you can do like these laws of exclusion, right? So okay, these all belong to him. So therefore these have to belong to that other guy. You circumvent all of that. And what you do is you send these coins over individually, right? So you send all of these coins in individual transactions, each to their own address, which are all which all belong to you, right? But you, like, you don't care, like your wallet handles all of that. Uh, they all get moved over to your to addresses that are controlled by you. But if like hundreds and hundreds or millions of people do that, all of these transactions will like kind of vanish in that current, in that torrent of transactions that all just move coins from A, like individual coins from A to B. 
And that way you like don't leak that this like this bundle of coins belonged to one person. In this clip from episode 217, Terry Tiller talks to us about which cryptos are for the people and which are not. And we continue with privacy issues regarding crypto. I think that's kind of what we're under, is somewhat of a controlled demolition across the board. Then how do you maintain some assets, right? So you need things that are outside of the system. So whether it be gold and silver, whether you think there's a jurisdiction where the banks are going to be protected or safer, you've got to look at these kinds of issues, things that you talk about a lot. And crypto was built as a parallel economy, a parallel system. But the World Economic Forum is also working hard to hijack that technology. They're working hard to kind of take over and manipulate crypto. So they manipulate prices. Pretty obvious to me, I would argue that BlackRock had a definitely had a hand in collapsing Luna and the stable coins and totally disrupting the market. And I think they're obviously manipulating Bitcoin prices. I, I think there's a lot of manipulation going on. And now they've got their own pet projects, right? So you can read in their own documents, the IMF, the BIS, doesn't matter where you're looking. They're talking about using Ripple and XRP and XLM and all the ISO 2022 coins. They're very engaged in that. So we, it's not enough for us to just say, hey, crypto's great. It's outside of the system. We also have to dig a little deeper and say, well, which ones are for the people? Which ones are pro-freedom? Which ones are ones that they can't control? Or they're going to have a real hell of a time controlling? What can they not stop? In the early days of Bitcoin, we talked about censorship resistance. But I mean, that mythology has fallen apart because look what happened in the Canadian truckers. People donated. They made a nice, gentle donation. Even single moms who were broke and struggling might have made a $20 donation. And they're on a blacklist for life. Their bank account's frozen. And in some cases, they sent Bitcoin and they knew who it was. And so if they can block that, if they can, if they can blacklist everyone who used Tornado Cash, that is not our answer to freedom in the future. So it doesn't matter if you're a Bitcoin maxi. You've got to, at some point in time, look at the objective reality and the facts. It's a Bitcoin is a beautiful project. I'm excited about it. It's, you know, I'm excited that it, that it existed. It created, it started a movement. It's doing a lot of great things for us. But in the end, something that's more transparent than our current banking system is not the answer to our future. In this clip, Tobias breaks down what is a Tumblr option for privacy versus individual privacy coins. I have heard in Bitcoin that they use things, I think it's called a tumbler or something as well for privacy. So they would send coins to a special wallet, they'd mix them all up, and then they'd spit them out the other side with no one knowing where they're going. First of all, does that work? And second of all, you know, why is that not a solution? And why is breaking it into a thousand or a hundred different wallets a better solution? So that's still a viable option to do that. But unfortunately, you tell like on the blockchain, you tell everyone, hey, I tumbled my coins, right? Like everybody knows, okay, this coin is from a tumbled output. And then if you ever like need to do something more legit, right? Like maybe you want to deposit your coins at Coinbase or whatever, then they'll immediately be like, no, 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 no. Come on, dude. Like this is obviously from a tumble. Like please send us your address. We'll send your coins back, right? Like we can't do that. So they're basically like flagged then after that. Yeah, they're like quote unquote dirty because I don't know how they work exactly on Bitcoin, but on Bitcoin Cash and also on eCash, they have, they call it Coin Fusion, which I think has a little bit more privacy since the amounts you can put in are arbitrary and has better UX in that sense. But they know that these transactions look incredibly suspicious, right? It's like a transaction that has like 76. Uh, inputs or whatever, and then 83 outputs. And all other transactions look completely different, right? They look out like a sore thumb, I guess. So you can be anonymous with them, but then it's very clear that you are being anonymous and then there's going to be more scrutiny towards yeah. those coins. Okay, interesting. And on the individual coin model, it actually looks less suspicious because what a chain analysis would say right now is that that person sent money to it himself right like when you have money in a, in a wallet and you send the exact amount down to the satoshi because that's what it seems like usually what you're doing you see is you're moving your money from like from your computer to your phone wallet yeah. whatever right because you're sending the entire amount down to the satoshi so like you don't care if it's like point five, six, eight, nine, seven, or whatever, you just want to move the entire amount. But with the stamp model, right, where you have these individual coins, you're actually sending money over just to a, to a real person. But it looks like you, that real person is 
the sender, if that makes sense. It does make sense. But so how would it work then? You, you would have your own wallet, you would send it through Stamp to another wallet that you own, or Stamp is the wallet, and that's your new wallet that you would have all of these different ones? Yeah, it's the latter. Like you still want that other person to receive one transaction, right? It should be like, okay, plus $50 or whatever. It shouldn't be like a hundred transactions that all look like they're coming from different people because you don't like, how, how can you do any kind of business this way? This is horrible user experience. What Stamp does, it actually, it has a second layer of communication, which connects the wallets such, such that one wallet can tell the other wallet like off-chain, right? Basically anonymously. I mean, peer completely encrypted, right? So if you don't leak your data, it's like, okay, these bunch of transactions, they all belong to you and they're all one thing and they come from me. You can even attach metadata like, hey, this is Tobias, right? Tobias is sending you this money. Then you have more anonymity, but you also have better uh, UX. You have better user experience because you can have like, you can also send messages, Right. So you can be like, okay, here's $50 and you can explain, or can you send me, or I accidentally sent too much. Can you send me 10 back or whatever? You can have like a conversation within the wallet. Yeah. So when you go in as the user, it's not going to be, you don't have to sign in 100 times into 100 different wallets to see it. It's all going to be consolidated from what you see, but in the background, there's a lot more going on. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I have to, Preface, we are still in development. I always say it works 90% of the time, which is a ridiculously bad number, right? Because if it goes, if it's about money, then it should really work 99.999% of the time because otherwise, you know, but we have a working prototype, right? It, it uh, works. And now we're like working to make an actual product that people can use because um, talking to people who are in crypto, like, all they can talk about is, oh, we need privacy, we need privacy coins. Oh, and everybody knows Bitcoin isn't private and so forth. And I totally agree. Like, this is something we really need. And also, like, if we have a messenger built into the wallet, which is very, like, encrypted, just as, just as good as Signal, then even more decentralized, and we can get to that uh, maybe in a bit, then that's really something that is in demand, right? Like, I've been talking to people, they need that. <laughs> well, and I like how you are building it on the back of Bitcoin opposed to, hey, we need a completely new chain and a completely new token, and then trying to move people over on something new, you're actually using something that is near and dear to many people's hearts and then just increasing the usability of it. So that's amazing. Some of the messages that get sent between the wallets, there has to be a payment on the blockchain. And right now we are doing that on the Lotus blockchain, which is a new blockchain, Okay. right? But like, if you are have a coin that's near and dear to you, like I don't know, Bitcoin, Doge. I mean, especially coins that are not as expensive. So if you have like the time to time the market with the fees and whatever, then it works fine. But especially coins like eCash, which is a form of Bitcoin. So if you have old Bitcoin, you have eCash, and then it allows you to anonymize your transactions and use the Lotus blockchain to communicate between between wallets. Just wanted to clarify that you can use your coins that are near and dear. <laughs> okay, well, I was about to move on. So I do think that there is more things to explain. So really what you're saying is that this can be used on many different blockchains, not just on the back of Bitcoin then. Yeah. Okay. So you could have a multi-chain wallet and to go really crazy, like if you send someone money over, you could be like, okay, let's go hyper anonymous because I, I'm going to send you in like five different cryptocurrencies and they're all like completely uncorrelated, right? Because like you don't, you don't see anything. So you could send some portion over in Doge, some portion in LTC, some portion in BCH, some portion in eCash. And they all look like one bundle and they're uncorrelated. So you could do that. I mean, this is obviously far down the roadmap, but this is all technically possible and I think would be really cool. In this clip, Terry Tiller talks to us about cryptocurrency and quote-unquote criminal coins. If you don't want to be someone who owns nothing at the end of whatever is coming, however this shows up, because they're going to devalue the dollar to zero even if they don't turn off the old system, like some way, somehow, they're making sure that your wealth transfers to them. How do you prevent that? Well, we play some of our bets on what I call the criminal coins in crypto. That's just because I'm not going to risk a lifetime's worth of hard work to make sure that I own nothing. 
And if I'm stealing from them, so to speak, that's kind of how I justify it. I don't mind stealing a little piece of their pie. I don't want them owning all of it. And then we place a lot of bets on the freedom projects in crypto, the privacy ones, the ones that they can't shut down. If you did donate to the truckers, they couldn't have found out, right? So we are just trying to diversify in lots of ways. We think everyone should have at least one or two residencies, at least a second passport, or at least be working towards one, trying to put some things in place. So those are the kinds of things that we're really big on. We're looking at business ideas. You know, if we can teach people how to build an online funnel and generate some cash from some expertise or some some kind of knowledge that they have, some kind of specialized knowledge, then you know we're definitely encouraging that and showing them all the steps and pieces and business models that they can go and copy to make it work for them. So we're not trying to prescribe what they do. We're trying to put them in front of options, places that we're putting our own money and that we're trying to diversify in places that are paying well or we're hoping will pay well and letting people get a grab at what makes sense for them. In this clip from episode 188, Tobias breaks down privacy coins versus his solution. Let's get into Monero, Zcash, any other privacy coins. First of all, how do they work? And you've explained your system. Do you think that they're that's solving problems that Monero and stuff is not solving? Or like, I, I'm just trying to understand why we would need what you're doing opposed to what's already in existence. Yes. So, I mean, as I said, I'm a fan of Monero and Zcash. But I'm afraid, or like there's good data to show that they work fine right now. But once we get like, I don't know, hundreds of millions of users who use that regularly, that there will be similar problems as we see on, for example, Ethereum, right? That fees go up. Right now they, they aren't, but you know, like people, we need to start being like, hey, this might be an issue, right? Like in the future, we don't want you all to like lock yourself into a system that then is like hard to fix. However, I still like encourage people to use Zcash, right? Because we need to have the, we need to bootstrap an economy based on that. And Zcash works, Monero works. So, right, like I don't want to discredit them whatsoever. So how does Monero work? How does Zcash work? So they both use advanced cryptography, so to speak. And the way uh, Monero works is that it has a very interesting model where you sort of say like, they also have a coin model. So you have coins lying around. But when you send a coin from one, one place to another, like let's say I send coins over to you on the blockchain, they kind of get duplicated. So the old coin is still there and the new coin is also there. Like it's a little, it's crypto magic, but like that's the way you can think about it. And then what you do is you make a, a cryptographic proof that the amount of money stayed the same. Right. So you, don't, you didn't like create any money out of, out of nothing. And the way you get the privacy is that you say, okay, I have this transaction and these are all the inputs, right? What you do is you specify a whole bunch of inputs. You specify, maybe you have two coins in your wallet, but instead you specify like 20, right? And they don't even have to be yours. They could be old coins that somebody else had, which I don't know, have been around for a while. And then what you do is you say, okay, I know like two of these coins. I have a signature for two of these coins. I'm not going to tell you which one, like cryptographically, but two of them I do know, right? And then what you also do is you make a proof that is like, okay, I know two of these coins and I'm moving money over to these other addresses. And by doing that, the uh, money supply stays the same. I barely get my mind around that. So I, I like try to explain it as simple as possible. <laughs> I'm a little bit cross-eyed after that one. I'm just going to go with it's magic. It works like magic. <laughs> now, does Zcash and Monero work on the same type of system? Like, is it the same mechanism for both of these? Or do they have differences between the two? Yes, they have differences. Zcash has two kinds of transactions. They have transparent transactions and they have shielded transactions. Shielded transactions are much harder to do. So when I do them on my phone, it takes like 10 seconds, uh, roughly maybe a little less to like just sign the transaction. Whereas a normal Bitcoin transaction, it takes like 70 microseconds or so, like very, very fast to do a signature. So that means that Zcash is using very advanced technology. The technology they're using is called zero knowledge proofs. That's where the Z comes from. And zero knowledge 
that's perfect for anyone who's into uh, anonymity. So if you hear anything zero knowledge related and you are into anonymity, then, you know, maybe pay a little bit of attention. And those are very novel kind of cryptography. Like people only talked about that theoretically, like just, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. But now we actually have the mathematics to do these kinds of proofs. And basically what it is, you can prove a statement to be true without revealing any kind of additional information. So what you can do, like what Zcash does is like, okay, I moved money over to another place. I'm not going to tell you from where to where. I just moved money and the money supply stays the same, right? So that's the proof you're doing. You're not revealing the amount you sent. You're not revealing the addresses where the money came from. And you're not revealing where the money went to, right? You're not revealing any of that. I mean, obviously what you are revealing is like the timestamp when the money was sent and maybe your IP address if you're not careful. But other than that, it's it's very, very private. I would say that Zcash is probably, if you use shielded transactions, and to be honest, they massively improve the user experience on that. So it's quite convenient. Not as fast as like, let's say eCash transactions, but very, very like. So why would someone not want to do that? Like, why do they have two versions? Why is there not the standard where it's the most secure? Because it takes longer time to do the transaction? Is that the main hurdle there? Yeah, probably the way they did that originally was that it took like a minute or so to compute these, right? And over time, they were able to optimize them. So initially, it was more like a, a research kind of thing. We're like, hey, we are able to do these. Let's launch our coin and get into production quickly. But we, we also have to have these transparent transactions, which are just ordinary Bitcoin transactions. And we do those because we want people to use the coin. And these shielded transactions are there for people who are like fine with like waiting a bunch of time. Like the cryptography just doesn't take them. So did they come afterwards? Is that like an upgrade on it? Or they came out at the same time and they knew that one was going to be slower and one was going to be faster. So they gave people the options. Yes, they came out simultaneously, but over time they upgraded them. And they were okay, like if you do them differently, then we can be faster. And also like one thing, if you were to ask, oh, is there anything that like is concerning about Monero or Zcash, then I would think that I would say the most concerning thing is that is the magic aspect, right? So first of all, I was trying to read how Zcash works and it's either like, oh, using Zcash is like shouting in a cave, like very, very simple analogies, or it's like these symbols and mathematical constructs, which are very very advanced which is just like you have to spend like years in order to like catch up to the just the what the symbols mean right you have to like learn basically a new language and what that means is that there's fewer eyes who are looking at that who are capable of looking at that as opposed to bitcoin which is very very simple to understand right you can learn that in maybe a year and have like a thorough understanding of all the moving parts, peer-to-peer and everything. Even the encryption is really not that difficult. Like if you know a little bit about mathematics, then it's not that hard. Whereas Monero and especially Zcash, they are way more fragile, way harder to really nail. And what actually was the consequence of that, and that happened on both Monero and Zcash, and is in my view a little concerning, is that there was a bug in the cryptography. You have to do the math, but you have to do the math correctly in the notes, where in practice, you can create coins out of thin air, right? So you can duplicate your money by exploiting some kind of cryptography bug, right? So that is for anyone who's like, oh, let me invest all my money into privacy coins. Then it'd be like, yes, but maybe hedge some with coins that are transparent, right? That where like you can trace ownership, we can trace amounts because they already have been exploits, small amounts, right? Because people were testing and like whatever, but where people have minted coins out of thin air. And the really concerning part there is that these are impossible to detect until you kind of find the bug on your own, right? If you're like, oh, actually you can you know, find a zero if you multiply these numbers, whatever, right? And then you're like, oh, wait a second, someone minted coins out of thin air using this bug. Right. But that's not good. Right. Ideally, you have like an alert system, which is like danger, danger. Somebody made a transaction that created money out of thin air. And we know that. Whereas on Zcash and Monero, they both already had attacks that some flaw in the mathematics was exploited. Hopefully, over time, those will become less and less. But we, it's hard to know. Right. Like that's the occult part about that. 
Here is Terry again to talk to us about his favorite privacy coins and the parallel economy. You had mentioned some of the privacy coins or as there's different terms for them. Let's dig into a couple of your favorite projects. And we these are not recommendations to buy or recommendations to go out there and sink your life savings into. I just want to understand a little bit about the technology, why you think that these are a much better option for someone who is out there who agrees with you and I that there are darker days to come and kind of how these things function. So any of the projects that you are a fan of, maybe we can discuss some of those. Yeah, well, I think the starting point is to talk about Monero because that was the first big one and it's got a big market. It's been working functionally serving the black market, which I call the free market. I can't stand that term, the black market, but it's been used in the free markets for a long period of time. And so long story short, it basically has all of the good qualities that you like about Bitcoin except that it's private. And why not use something that is private versus one that is not? And if you don't think privacy is important, then why don't you have a webcam installed in your living room right now or in your bathroom and just turn on the camera and let the whole world see what you're doing 24-7? You know, (laughs) privacy obviously matters. But in the case of had people donated in Monero, just use that as an example. When we saw the truckers convoy, then people would people would have not had their accounts frozen, they would have not had their assets seized, and they would not be on some kind of watch list. This is going to be really important. They're telling you that you will have no privacy. When they're telling you that deliberately, then you need to look for solutions. And from the global perspective, not just your personal perspective, if we want to build a new financial system, because the one we live in sucks royally, anyone who studied it knows it's completely corrupt to the core, that's one group of people controlling the printing press, is horrible for humanity. It has been destroying wealth. It's been destroying incomes. If you look at it on an inflation-adjusted thing, everything's been gone since the gold standard. Everything's just dropping like an anvil in the ocean. We have to put an end to that. But it can't be done on a surveillance, transparent ledger. It can't be done. If you picture it this way, Bitcoin is like the trench coat flasher. It's showing you (laughs) everything, everything. They can track everything on that network. And a few people would say, well, if you jump through 98 hoops, Mikhail, you don't understand, we can keep Bitcoin private. And I say, yes, but if we're trying to build a new monetary system, if we're trying to build free markets and and do commerce and interconnect and, and send money back and forth for goods and services, it needs to be something that's usable for everybody. And it needs to be private because soon when they introduce their central bank digital currencies, you have to picture a day where they try and outlaw the alternatives because they've only got two things to give you. One is incentive, which they're going to hand out plenty of that or force, right? Because carrot or the stick. I mean, it's going to be UBI and then I don't even want to know what the force is going to be, but it's not going to be pretty, I'm sure. Right. But when you read their documents from the IMF and the Bank of International Settlements, they also tell you the solution, right? If you read between the lines, they're telling you that privacy is the thing they're most concerned about. They're concerned about the stable coins that they don't issue. They're concerned about privacy and privacy tech because they don't know how to stop it. So they're telling us the solution, right? They're telling us a solution. So Monero has 13 decoys. If you can picture 13 trench coat flashes and you've got to identify one of them. And now there's a new privacy project called, it's called Privacy, P-R-C-Y is the ticker symbol. It has 36 decoys, if you will, for ease of understanding versus Monero's now 16. And that's great and well and wonderful. The, the privacy P-R-C-Y is a little too small. Monero is well built out. But Monero developers themselves will tell you that ZK Snarks is a superior technology. The World Economic Forum will tell you ZK Snarks is a superior technology. They want to use it for their central bank digital currencies. Only on the wholesale side where privacy for them, none for you, though. So they're telling you they're doing it. Then there's a project called PyroChain, a small community-driven project with no free mine, no ICO, no dev taxes, none of the some of the dirty stuff to enrich developers that's happening in the crypto space, they skipped all of that. You would think they're almost too small for anyone to see, but basically the criminals have gone and literally copied the entire pirate chain blockchain to try and create some decoy to try and keep people off the trail. To me, this is their way of telling you that this is where the solution is found, just like they hijacked Zcash. Zcash, we were told, was a privacy project, but then the, the, the VC funding came in and magically... Privacy became optional on there. 
But 99% of the transactions are not done privately, meaning you can still hop, skip, and a trace through the blockchain and figure out what everybody's doing. So that doesn't work. And I ask you this, if, here's the thing, Mikhail, you and I go to the sandwich shop, all right? We go to a sandwich shop in uh, El Salvador. You buy lunch for the two of us, you pay in Bitcoin, and someone wants to look up your Bitcoin address and they find out you're a wealthy guy. All of a sudden, when you and I are leaving the restaurant, our physical security is at risk because they can do that. You can, they can just, because you sent a transaction from your wallet, they can now tell everything that you've ever done with Bitcoin, every transaction you've ever done and how much you hold. Now all of a sudden they think we're two wealthy gringos in another country. We're getting followed down the street and our hotel room's getting broken into. That's a physical security risk. That's outside of the state. And so then you know that there's that kind of physical security risk. Do you want obfuscation or do you want complete anonymity in your finance? Like, I don't want obfuscation. I don't want it where they can use algorithms and basically break it down to, there's a really good chance out of the last million transactions on the Monero blockchain, it's one of these four dudes who has it. That's still a risk. They may not be able to take it to court, but it's still the chain analysis metrics can still track you down. They did a report, I think in, don't quote me on this, but it was something like 2017 or 18. There was a report put out by one of the chain analytics firms saying that they could track 98% of the Monero blockchain. And so I know they're trying to work on it, trying to make it better. And hopefully someday they will. And honestly, I want them all to succeed. But so we call that the anonymity set, the 16 decoys, the trench coat flasher guys, the 30 that I saw about earlier. The pirate chain anonymity set is 1.2 million. It's so 16 or 1.2 million completely blacked out or obfuscated where you can kind of follow the trail. I don't want that. And I think we need a financial system for the greater good and for us as individuals. Because the other thing I want to add, the way I see this playing out, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is I don't think in the beginning that the criminals win or the good guys win. I think we have an in-between. I think we build this monster parallel economy in the beginning, and they're going to implement what they want to implement like a freight train, and there's nothing we can do to stop them from bringing in that new system. I don't, I don't see how we can stop that in the short term. And the countermeasures, because pirate chain's not the only one, the countermeasures to that are not fully built out. But I think in a parallel economy that we build out, it needs to be built completely private because they're going to criminalize anyone participating in it at some point. So it needs to be really private for your physical safety. And then at minimum, there's more to privacy than that, but at minimum. And then from there, it becomes the game of us tapping everyone on the shoulder. We got a better way over here. It's working great. Hey, we got a better way. And eventually we pull enough people out of their system and then it kind of crumbles in its own way that no one wants to use it. Their latest survey, because I read their report, said less than 6% of the population wants to accept CBDCs. But they're gonna, the alternatives are about to be taken away from them. So we need an alternative that they can't take away. In this clip, Tobias Ruck talks to us about the threat of CBDCs. I think this is a good segue because we kind of touched on government agencies. Let's get into the CBDC kind of stuff here. First of all, explain to everybody what this is, and then we'll go in whichever direction you want on it. Yes. So a CBDC is very simple. It allows people to send US dollars from person to person directly by only going through the Federal Reserve. Right. So right now, if we have this two-layer model, so to speak, so we have the Federal Reserve. They, they are like a bank, but their only customers are other banks. So when you have money at the bank and you send that over to somewhere else, then what the bank will do eventually, they will send some money from their bank account at the Federal Reserve over to another bank. And now with Bitcoin, some very smart people at the Federal Reserve, yes, there are some, realize that, wait a second, we can use that ourselves, that model of Bitcoin right? Which is just one big database that can handle a ridiculous amount of transactions. So what the difference is that the central bank digital currency, CDBC, instead of, be, instead of sending money from bank to bank, you send money from person to person and all the transactions are verified by the central bank. So you no longer have a bank account at like Bank of America or Commerzbank in Germany, you have money at the Federal Reserve. Your account is at the Federal Reserve directly. So that's the difference. And you could say like, okay, okay, you just exchange one bank to another. But in my view, you just have 
one entity that tracks and verifies and handles all transactions that's just a big invitation for the devil right just like you get a whole bunch of basically it's a panopticon but it also allows you to just blacklist people from the economy itself because we already have stable coins like you would think that okay if they were trying to present a solution and i don't think they are i mean the only solution for them is more power can and control over us. But if they were really trying to sell this to people, then stable coins wouldn't already exist because that kind of already does what we need it to do if we need to have things that are not going to be as volatile as sending Bitcoin or any of the other tokens that are out there, right? I think it's more complicated. So which stable coins are really that great? So we have Tether and Tether, you know, like people have question marks around that. And it also like it runs either on... Bitcoin, which is expensive to send, or the majority is actually on Ethereum, which is even more expensive to send. So all the Federal Reserve has to do is just make it really cheap to send US dollars and to like plug it into all the existing financial services. And then also to make it really, really complicated to use a stablecoin that's not the Federal Reserve coins. So I think in a twisted way, they're actually solving problems, right? They're actually like being a market participant only the three ways they are getting their quote-unquote product into the market is first of all by having the recognition and authority, right? Like if there's they say something, like it's going to be way more impactful than if, say, some like Coinbase says something or like introduces something. Second of all is obviously the guns of the government, right? Like they can just be like, hey, like this is legal tender. Use it or you get trouble. Whereas I can't do that. I can't force people to accept my stablecoin. I mean, I could, but it wouldn't be legal. And the third one is to allow easy integration into existing financial markets, right? Like the regulations can be very friendly towards the CDBC and very unfriendly towards all stablecoins. And yeah, and it, so I think it doesn't look too good with stable coins unless we are smart about how we move. Okay. I don't know. I would think anybody who is going to be using CDBDCs is an absolute traitor to the cause and should be tarred and feathered. So I just can't see that anybody in the crypto sphere is going to actually use any of this, which means that they're not actually targeting people like you and I as the user base. They must be going after the normies then. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're targeting normies, but they are quite sneaky about that because so there's the biggest project that the Federal Reserve is working on and that they publicly announced and everything is called Project Hamilton. And one of the big ideas behind Project Hamilton is that they want to ensure privacy, which we might be like, wait a second, like, isn't this <laughs> supposed to be a panopticon or whatever? But they make some good arguments, which I think are nonsense, but like they make a good argument that, that they're like, hey, this is actually much more private than Bitcoin because there's no public blockchain where you can inspect these transactions. And also the Federal Reserve pinky promise, like we, we showed you the code, right? We're not storing any transactions. We're all throwing them away. There's no blockchain that like stores transactions. There's just the current state of the system. Also, the current state of the system is encrypted. Right. So we don't even know how much money you have or like if you have any money and so forth. Pinky promise. We keep that encrypted. So if they're like able to convince people and I think like talking to, to people, some of them are like, oh, I'm curious how they like I heard they're trying to do privacy on the CDBC. Like I'm curious how they are able to achieve that. If they're actually doing what they're claiming they're doing and like actually throwing away the data that they're claiming to throw away, then yes, it's actually quite private. But I rather believe in the tooth fairy than that they are actually deleting all of that data. I mean, come on, like they spent billions of dollars to like hack the encryption or like even the random number generators in our phones. And now we're like handing them over <laughs> that data through the CDBC. Obviously, they're going to track all of that. So you ask like, how are normies going to accept that? And it's very, very simple. It's going to be through stimulus checks, right? It's going to be like, okay. You are poor. That's bad, right? You lost your business. Oh, so sad that the, the virus stopped you from being able to go to open your shop, to go to work. Now you're unemployed. That is very, very sad. But we have a solution. 
here is CDBC coin, right? Here's some money. We are so generous. Here's, I don't know, $2,000 in CDBC money. You can spend that wherever you want, as long as it is approved by us, <laughs> right? Because they can be like, okay, they're spending constraints. They're actually doing that in China already. And then people will be like, well, it's free money and I can buy stuff with it. Like we can call them traitors, but like if the government is giving you free money to like buy groceries and stuff and like the other option is to, I don't know, become a farmer and become self-sufficient or to starve, then I mean, obviously become a farmer and become self-sufficient. You like accept the money and go to Walmart and like buy, um, I don't know, some soft drink that will poison you or whatever, right? Here we have Gabriel Custodiate from episode 162 to help you start thinking against the grain to give you more privacy. Anytime you are signing up for a service and paying for it, and usually these are intertwined, you are immediately giving away some privacy because you have you know, signed up for a service. You have given a you know, VPN your, you know, your credit card or what have you. You've given you know, your Windows operating system uh, some of your information. So I think that there is an inverse correlation between spending money and gaining privacy. Another example, uh, I stopped using antivirus software. I know that that might sound anathema to some people, but if you're using Linux and you're practicing safe browsing habits, that is a lot more secure than having a, an antivirus that has immense access to your computer, especially when it scans immense access. That's a lot better. So this is where simplicity and thinking a little bit against the grain can give you more privacy than just sort of shelling out the money and, and hoping it will pay off. Because at the end of the day, you know, as Thomas Edison once said, opportunity is often missed because it is dressed in overalls and it looks like work. There is, there is work that fundamentally has to go into preserving one's privacy and some research. And it's not something that you can offload to somebody who's going to, who you're going to give your credit card information to and who is going to sort of take over your privacy. Privacy is always eccentric. It comes from within and it cannot almost by definition, it cannot come from a third party, if that makes sense. Here's Terry Tillert again to talk about other projects taking place within the parallel economy to increase privacy. And he touches on a few privacy issues in regards to the internet, email, and more. Also for power and the reticulum network is trying to build a mesh network for the internet that we can get on, that we can all use safely and privately and, and to build an entire parallel economy kind of on a platform like that. So we're big fans then, and, and I don't know if you've probably seen this, people are now trying to upload things to their Google Drive and they're getting a notification that's a violation of some kind of Google policy when no humans looked at it and they're getting sent back and getting kicked like it's time that we stop storing our data with them. It's time, same with our email accounts. Like I still, it's hard to fully get out of a Gmail account if you've had one for a long time, but at least put your important stuff on a privacy based email. We recommend mail fence to people. Even if you've got nothing to hide, the point is it's none of their business and your private communication still should still be somewhere in private. And so, you know, same with when you're watching YouTube, you can download a, an app called New Pipe and you can access the entire YouTube library of content to break your connection for who's watching it, right? So the same way we use VPNs, the same way we recommend, we are always recommending, we know that not everyone's got the finances to buy a new privacy laptop, buy a new private phone, get an anonymous SIM card, and maybe they don't have the tech know-how or the money. There's just a lot of things you could do on your existing phone right now that you could be in control of. And one by one, as we support the alternatives, hey, we throw our support to them. So they, they have an incentive to continue developing, which I love. I want to support the alternative social media platforms. It's only a matter of time before we get like a real good, decentralized, strong one. We'll get there. We'll get there. But we have to support the ones that are already doing it and trying to build those good things, those freedom-based technologies. Because, you know, I always laugh, Mikhail, when people say, well... I'm just sticking to cash. And I'm all like, they're going to get rid of cash. And I think you can do it. I don't want to be in the digital world. I don't want to use my phone. I don't want to be in the internet. And I don't want all this crypto. And I don't want to learn anything new. I'm like, I don't know. You can, you can try that kicking and screaming, but I don't see that working out for you no matter what. So if you can't get around, you know, if you're going to be forced into this world, why aren't we taking control of what we can control and, and use these alternatives, support everybody who's trying to build something that is a freedom-based tech because like you said earlier, the conversation bounces, but we're ultimately talking about 
absolute freedom, but in every regard of our lives, you know, people have a very narrow definition of freedom sometimes. In our final clip, Gabriel Custodia from episode 162 is going to make five major recommendations to make right now to have more privacy in your life. Now, we have covered a lot of things in this episode, probably close to 100 different things. And there's so much here to digest. But if you were to pick, say, I don't know, five things, Gabe, out of these 100, five things that my listeners could put into their lives today, fast action things that can actually make a real difference in their life, what would be the major recommendations you would have for them? So first of all, I would say use cash as much as you can. I know that's not a very popular thing. It's uh, it's dirty, it's this and that, but cash is the pivotal instrument for private transactions. So put down the credit card, take out some cash from the ATM and use that as much as you can. And if not for you, then for everybody else who is going to be victim to a cashless society in the upcoming years, please use cash as much as you can. Second, I would say download a password manager like we just talked about. This will help you organize your accounts so that you don't have them in spreadsheets and here and there and in your Apple notes. Get a password manager. I recommend an offline one called KeyPass XC, but that cannot necessarily sync with your various devices. So uh, if you would like to sync with your various devices and compromise potentially with some uh, online security, then you can use Bitwarden. But either way, download a password manager, and every time you log into a new account, just start improving the password and organizing your digital life in that way. Next, I would say, tip number three, download a private messenger, such as Signal, such as Wire. Really, anything is more secure than Facebook Messenger and SMS. Even if you're using uh, WhatsApp, which I don't recommend, it's better than SMS. Download one of these, try to convert some of your friends and start getting comfortable with it and using it. And make you can make phone calls with a lot of these as well. Fourth, I would say, reassess your engagement with social media, go back into your accounts, tone down some of the stuff you reveal about yourself, turn off tracking, change your, change your name and your profile photo, and start to reevaluate how much social media is a part of your life. And then fifth, and finally, I would say, go ahead and get a VPN, a paid VPN. Some of the ones that I recommend are you know, Proton VPN or Moldad. You'll have to do a little bit of your own research when trusting a VPN company, get a VPN, use that anytime you connect to the internet. This will hide your internet traffic from your internet service provider and will make sure that the websites you visit are also not getting your location information and starting to build a fingerprint of you as the internet user. There you have it, episode 223 in the bag. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got lots of good insights. Make sure to check out our sponsor of this week's episode. If you go to myprivatebitcoin.com, myprivatebitcoin.com, and check out the course that we've got listed there for you, there's even a 25% discount for all expat money show listeners. So that's it. I hope you guys have an excellent last couple of days of 2022. And we will see you next week, next Wednesday for 2023 with all new content here. And if you guys want to go back and listen to any of these episodes in full, then all you need to do is search for episodes 162, 217, 187, and 188. That's it. Hope you guys have a wonderful New Year's and I'll talk to you very soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels.